Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery, helping all of us develop products our customers love. This episode is sponsored by PDMA, the Product Development and Management Association. PDMA is a global community of professional members whose skills, expertise, and experience power the most recognized and respected innovative companies in the world. PDMA is also the longest running professional association for product managers, leaders, and innovators, having started in 1976. I've enjoyed being a member myself of PDMA for more than a decade, finding the resources and network very valuable. Please go check it out yourself at pdma.org. And PDMA has invited me to their conference, which was in Orlando, Florida, that's where I am now doing this recording, to interview some of their great speakers. We've been doing a series on these, and I think this is probably the second or third one in the series right now. You'll hear a few more too. The speaker presented on the topic, Get Into the Discovery Zone, with lean and agile math methods, it's really easy for teams to fall into the trap of pursuing speed and a sense of progress while failing to provide value on the most important aspects that customers need. I talked to teams myself that run into this issue. The discovery zone, as our speaker will share, changes that, and let's find out what that really involves. Our guest is David Matheson. He's a practitioner and thought leader in portfolio and innovation management and co-founder of SmartOrg, a Silicon Valley-based company that connects innovation and finance. With decades of experience, David has helped senior management of firms around the world improve their results for portfolio management, product development, innovation, R&D, capital investment, and strategy. He earned a PhD at Stanford University, where he has also taught strategic portfolio management. And as a reminder, listeners, if you want a full written summary of everything we discuss, along with a one-page action guide of the key takeaways that David will share with us, you'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 420. David, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. The Discovery Zone. First, we need to get some grounding into what this thing is. I always like to try and start with the problem. So what was the problem that you saw going on that even led to this thing we'll find out about? I've been doing a lot of work with HP. This grew out of some efforts there. And uh, HP is, has a long history of great innovation. And you may not know this, but at one point in history, around the time the Apple Watch came out, HP actually had the best smartwatch. Really? I did not know that. Nobody knows. knows. Because, of course, they canceled the program. Ah. But they had this realization that they could do small com computational devices, and they thought, let's do a digital watch. And their strategy was to do a platform. Hmm. So you could put it in, and other people, the fancy designers and different companies could do, they were going to be the watch inside for everybody else. And so the innovation team charged that. It was very exciting. And uh, the first question was, like, can we even pull this off? Okay, so team works really hard, they make a watch, they get the form factors down, they get the small screens, they get a designer involved, they have a really cool watch, they sell enough of them to show that it's real. I don't remember the number, but something like half a million dollars. I mean, nothing on HP scale, but they're showing some traction. Everybody's super excited. This sounds like great success. They take this to the management review board and they say, oh, that's great. Okay, our next question is how do we make a business out of this for HP? And so what do you think the team does? They run ahead and make more watches. So they do their, yeah, they do voice of the customer and they realize that there are different designers they can work with. And the first watch was a little cruddy so they can make it a little fancier. And they want a women's watch and they want the car lover's watch. And so they proliferate maybe 10 or so different watches. And they all sell. And they make more money. Again, it's prove it money. It's not real revenue money, but maybe it's on the order of like 10 million. Okay. So they come back and look at our great success. And management basically says, you did not answer our question. In fact, you've demonstrated that this cannot be a business for HP. And they killed the program. And it was probably the right call. Because 
these, these innovators charged ahead with the making of the product and didn't think about what the questions were that really made this work for HP. So they essentially worked on the right, on the wrong things. They were doing the wrong experiments. They were exploring issues like, can we make multiple SKUs? Can we bring on multiple designers? Do we appeal to broader audience? Nobody was actually questioning that, but we're pulled so strongly by that, we overlook some of the most important questions. So a little retrospective on this. We figure out what's going on. Basically what management is saying in this question is HP makes like laptops and we have one design and then we have, so that's just one SKU, and then we have a couple variations, so we have a few more SKUs that make modules that let us put it, and we sell millions of them. SKUs of millions, okay? Watches run in 10,000s. And this team demonstrated, in fact, unintentionally, that they couldn't make a scalable platform. So that was the underlying question. And so this team wasted a ton of money and a ton of time making, quote, innovation progress that looked good, but in fact, failed to answer the exact questions that would have caused HP and their management to write some very big checks and to really put a lot of wood behind this area. So there's a kind of innovation blind spot and the kind of lean and agile methods invite us to walk into this blind spot because it basically says, come up with your hypotheses and assumptions and all that, and all that's good. And then it says, do the ones that make the most traction, learn quick is a mantra, and get close to the customer. And all that's good as far as it goes. But what most teams do is they often don't do that critical thinking. They don't take a broad enough view and they just want to run. And so they essentially work the wrong hypothesis. They're not asking the critical questions that would really cause management to invest. This HP example, and I may be misunderstanding it, so yeah. I'm trying this, that it sounds like this was more of an issue of misalignment with the organization. They may have created a watch that could have been profitable on its own, yeah. but it didn't make sense for HP to go after this, given what that team had demonstrated at the time. Yeah, so that's correct, and that's why they canceled it. If you rewind the clock and say, had the team actually listened to what management was asking in a more robust way, they would have done different incubation experiments and they would have done work around the platform generalizability. We would have said, look, we have one SKU for a platform that's fixed. And now we've done these other watches. And instead of doing 10 different watches, we've done two and we can show how we can do a small variation with a minor tweak. That was, I don't know what they would have done exactly, but they put no attention into that issue. They just made more watches. So there were there was a, a real communication link and a blind spot created here. So this is really a business feasibility issue. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This blind spot is a setup. So business feasibility issue. And they didn't hear it. I've seen this a lot. And it's not just HP. There are many cases from HP. There are many cases from everywhere. You sure. just keep getting teams that run ahead in, in incubation. So we're talking about stuff that's a little wonky, right? And that's the where Discovery Zone matters. If you, it's version 1.1 of your project, probably this doesn't apply. But if you're making a new thing, this there's a lot of speculative content. And so what happens, if you've noticed, the innovation leaders in organizations have half-lives of two or three years, right? One of the reasons is because when they charge down this path, they basically are playing with the currency of their own credibility. So... This innovation team at HP and elsewhere is basically saying, yeah, got some guidance. We'll come up with something cool. Trust us. 
And if you don't come back with the cool thing, you only get so much rope. Because you're perceived. And I mean, there's a lot of cynical versions, innovation theater, sandboxes, people just do stuff. But they don't answer the decisive questions that actually manage the executive stakeholders and drive forward the business questions about what really needs to be incubated. So these questions must be part of the discovery zone. So, yes. so now we can introduce that. We understand the problem a little bit. Sometimes just innovators running ahead of what the situation actually calls yes. for. So yes. Tell us more about this, the discovery zone. So the discovery zone is basically outside your comfort zone. So there are forces in an organization that cause you to do whatever's next. So if you're an innovator and you want to get your stakeholders, well, you go ask them what matters to them. And they'll tell you some things. What they're going to tell you is from the perspective of the routine of the organization. Right. So you're going to have a long list of stuff that's, in fact, routine of the organization. It's a giant distraction machine. But there's a lot of political force around that. And you want to make progress, right? So you're going to listen to your key stakeholders. They're probably going to pitch something routine in the sweet spot of the organization, more or less. And you're going to want to make progress. You're going to pick something small. That's your comfort zone. It's the comfort zone of the organization. That's not the job of the innovator. That's essentially what HP was doing, right? Make watches. We're good at this. We know, how to make things. we know how to make things. It's the core problem. People are asking about this. So we'll just make it, right? So the discovery zone takes a different perspective. So you've got to ask yourself, you, you've got to, first of all, do some very broad issue scanning, like get multiple perspectives on what the issues actually are, what is between us and the big dream. So I would say, go talk to all those people and listen to what they say and get some out oddball views and all that, get a giant list of issues. Okay, so now you're going to sort these issues. And what I'm looking for are issues that have two impacts. The first one is that they're speculative. So that is, they're outside the company's wheelhouse, surprise is likely, and we're making it up. And a lot of times, we hide these things like if the customers want it, or can we make it scale? And like, we just don't talk about it. So you get them on the table. I have a scale called ignorance. The scale of ignorance at a very high ignorance is speculative. So here's an issue. Might be, we don't know what the price is or the willingness to pay or scalability or whatever it is. And what that means is surprise is very likely. I imagine that the range is somewhere between seven and nine. And I go into a study and the answer comes back banana, right? It's whoa, okay. And then the other end of the scale is routine. So this is stuff in the wheelhouse of the organization or in the, even if it's a big uncertainty, so it could be estimation error or it could be a big uncertainty that's in the wheelhouse. And as an example, pharmaceutical companies can prosecute clinical trials. That's the wheelhouse. So the innovator doesn't need to pay as much attention to that because that's not the part that's going to break the organization. So you've got speculative to routine and there's a tweener I call uncomfortable. So this is one axis. So the point is you do your issue scanning, you want to go after the things that are speculative. Okay. And one interesting thing I've found is that um, if you interview folks and you ask them about it, you can get your critics to agree on what's speculative. Oh yeah, I'm very worried about the price performance trade-off. You know, is that speculative? Oh no, we know how to do that eventually. Okay, how about I go work this other issue, because I'm the innovator, so that when this other question is answered, then you can pick up and answer this really important thing that you're suggesting to me. So that's how it works. So ignorance is one half of the discovery zone. Okay. The other half is impact. So what people want to do is make progress. So they pick something 
that shows results quickly. And this is good as far as it goes. But what that tends to be is stuff like make more watches. And so impact is different. Impact is how much will this uncertainty, resolving this uncertainty, change the confidence in the business case. So let me go back to the HP case. The question about whether you could impact designers and make more watches plus or minus 10% on the business case, right? People pretty much knew you could do that. It was going to be a question of how long and what the development cost was, but that was not a big hitter. The question of whether HP could do this in a modular scalable way would change this business case like 10, 20x. Because if you can do it in the modular way, then all of HP's economies of scale come into play. And if you can't, they have no business being there. You could make a niche business out of it, but they weren't that interested. So that uncertainty, how well can you make a scalable design, is like a 10x on the business case. But something like, can I make more watches, is an estimation error around the cost of developing a new design. So that's low impact. So the scaling thing is big impact. So let me come to the punchline of the discovery zone. High impact, high ignorance. So what the discovery zone is, is the place where you're making it up, you're going to be surprised, and where what you learn will dramatically change the business case one way or another. And this is where the innovation blind spots are, because people don't talk about them, because they're ignorant, and people shy away from them because they're actually kind of scary. If you get the wrong answer, you're done. But it's this decisiveness that actually makes it so powerful. Okay, so piggybacking on the HP example, I once bought a HP ZBook. And so I wanted a laptop that was more powerful, like a workstation, mm -hmm. right? And so this is not something they've had in their laptop line forever, so somewhere it got introduced. So they must have, someone had the thought at one point, like, we can keep adding more powerful chips into our laptops and they get incrementally better. What if we design the actual laptop architecture to have more workstation characteristics? And what could we do with that? And so you must have flushed that out. And so there's certainly uncertainties in that. Do customers want to buy from HP, that sort of thing? Is that competing directly with maybe the ThinkPad, IBM, Lenovo? How would we sit up in the market or not? Maybe that might be a question. But it does fit into our manufacturing capabilities. We know how to make laptops. We need new dies for new cases and things. It's going to be different, but still, with that we can scale. We know about that. That seems, on one hand, to line up with parts of the discovery zone, that this could be really high impact. But there's also a lot of new things that we would have to figure out if it makes sense for us to move that way, probably primarily with our customers, where customers would respond if we did that or not. Does that fit the discovery zone? Well, so I don't know much about that example. Sure. So in theory, sure. Yeah. And the... But, but basically a new product line that's related yeah. to their core. Yeah. Yeah. I can give you a concrete example of that. So another discovery zone example came up. And this is, again, work with HP. This was before I knew there was a discovery zone. But in around 2000, there are approximately 46 billion 4x6 prints printed every year in stores. Okay. That's and that's a lot of pictures and it's hard to imagine this world, but you got to rewind the clock. And HP had a developed a new print head that allowed them to do four by six prints sort of instantaneously. You could just put them in there. They got, it was wow. just, it was an amazing thing to watch. And so they had developed this vision of an ATM of photo. And so they were going around and they had done their voice of the customer work and they had developed beautiful kiosks. 
And people loved it. They did customer. They had design very well. And there was a place for memory keepers who were mostly women to put the purse. And they had the whole thing really wired. And they were just, they had some questions about it. And so I was called in and I asked them, beautiful vision, love it. I got to see the machine. I fell in love with the thing. I was just so excited. So I said, what are the risks in the project? And they told me a bunch of stuff, which basically boiled down to supply chain, right? This is an unattended thing. It has to run at a very low price point. We're competing with well-tuned machinery from places like Kodak that makes this stuff. It's got to be reliable, blah, blah, blah. And 90% of the project is working out this supply chain. And I realized that, so they were right, of course, but I realized I think it's the wrong question because they love to do that. This is their comfort. They're going to get there. And it just occurred to me in that moment when I asked this question, I thought, if I was investing in HP, I'm going to make a list of all the companies that I can think can pull off a complex consumer electronic supply chain in printing in around the year 2000. HP might be the top of my list. They can do that. I'm not questioning whether or not they can do that. So I flipped it around and I said, what would you want to know before you put your kid's college fund into making this happen? So I asked the kind of the executive management question, right? And eventually... They pretty quickly came up with a lot. They had a lot of issues about customer use patterns and so on. But the sort of critical issue, and to keep the story digestible, was the pattern of behavior. So the voice of the customer is over the top for this. People love it. But the question is, will people adopt it as a technology? Because the assumption is that if it's in the hotel lobby or your company cafeteria or on a soccer field somewhere, after the soccer game, everyone's going to have taken their pictures. They're all going to gather around the kiosk, print stuff out, share the pictures, and carry on, right? So how does that actually work as a life pattern? And they're like, no, people love it. We'll just, they'll make prints. There's a giant assumption. You're completely making it up. And it's night or day on the impact. And so this got them quite, they were quite scared of this idea. And eventually we worked our way through it. And they decide, so what is the experiment that tells you about whether or not there's a behavior change involved? It's a different way of looking at incubation. And so they go off, and what they came up with was they were going to saturate a zip code with prototypes, which they did against the objection of no, the engineering organization. The least expensive way no, they were losing money on every print. you got to imagine like stealth technicians hiding in trees and sitting on benches, and they were helping customers and all kinds of stuff. And so they ran this for a month or two. I don't know what the cost was, half a million dollars or something to do a good study. And uh, can you guess what the answer is? People don't like it. No, they love it. No way. Yeah, but... I want to hear the punchline here. It's a novelty. Everybody tries it. Nobody comes back. Fair enough. Okay? So it's a, it, it, the, the idea that you're going to change your behavior and carry your camera card with you, it's this, in fact, the ATM of footprint, that vision, very powerful, is actually like a mi- magician's misdirection. It makes you assume exactly what needs to be questioned because prints are not as ubiquitous or needed as urgently as money. And so it's a novelty. So it fails. This is a catastrophe. So this is their discovery zone. Looks like a catastrophe. However, and here's the brilliant thing about the discovery zone. See, your possibility of learning something new does not come from your comfort zone. It comes from outside your comfort zone where it matters. So that's high impact, high ignorance. That's the discovery zone. They did a discovery zone experiment. And they went into, in order to do this experiment, they had to engage with where they were physically 
in an actual environment, like which stores want it and what street corners and this kind of thing. And so what they found was that small stores who had lost the photo business to the big box stores really needed a way to draw people back into the stores for prints. Now, some of these had installed initial kiosks. So what they were saying is, I don't want a kiosk. I want you to cut that. I want that print engine. Why did you make the whole kiosk? That engine, can you optimize for this? I've got it. Give me an Ethernet cable yeah, and write you a check. we can provide, right? Yeah. And uh, HP, with a, a little coaching from me, the head get back, and basically he said, he went to his boss, who knew something was wrong, and he said, I want to cancel the ATM program. And the boss was expecting him to defend it. Okay, cover up, hide, and he said, I want to cancel it. And it immediately disarmed the conversation. And then the guy says, but I learned something so important. I have a proposal that I think is even better. Can I divert the funds to that? And he pitched the mini lab, which is, fills this niche. And then the skeptical executive got on board and helped create and upgrade that idea. Instead of fighting about the failure, he completely reframed it. And he came to me afterwards. He says, that experiment was terrifying. Had we not done it, this thing would have been $20 million in the hole. Three years later, it would be obviously not working, and someone would have put the thing out of its misery. So you saved a whole bunch of money, and I got a second at bat. And that mini lab played a big role in the bankruptcy of Kodak. It really directly competed with them. It put them off. So the point is that the discovery zone gives you that new learning and insight and one additional phenomenon. So remember I said the half-life of these people was low. So that failure could have been job-limiting. Right? So why wasn't it job limiting? In contrast, the watches case, that person was invited to spend more time with his family. This guy made a product that took, what, what's the difference? Okay. We got learning out of this. We got, got learning, learning out of it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So all that's good. And the other thing is that the failure actually saved the money. So how does the CFO go? So you're the, managing risk. You're managing risk. So it's like, you go in and you say, I ran this half million dollar experiment. I've just saved us $20 million because I don't want to go this way anymore. That completely reframes the business conversation for the innovation leader. It makes you a steward of the resources. So there's a kind of reframing in here where what you promise is not the, it's not the watch. It's not the, the printer. It's not whatever else the it is. You're going to work the it. You're going to work towards the vision. But what you're actually providing is the decisive information that the organization most needs to decide whether to put a lot of money. That's in the discovery zone. You make your experiments around what's in the discovery zone. And if you're successful and it works, you're a hero. And if it's not successful and you learn, you can be a hero too because you've actually set up the conversation for a second at bat. And if it fails completely and there is no pivot, you've been a good steward of the money and you saved the company a lot of money that they might have spent on something ridiculous. Yeah, this experiment approach is certainly what we should be doing. Hopefully, the years of build product, bring it to market, see if it succeeds or not, are behind us. Not fully, but we want to be doing smart things along the way so we're not spending all the money in development and launch just to figure out if we're right or not. So this is an experimentation approach to get information along the way. And when I was putting myself in my, the shoes earlier of would I care about this printer, we're in a hotel, a conference center. Yeah. And hey, if I was with my family, we're taking great pictures of the kids, 
I don't want to print them out because I don't want to carry them home. That, you know, that's it. for me. Yeah. So, yeah, that sounds like fun, but no, let's not do that now. We'll print them when we get home. The yeah. chances of them being damaged on the way is not, is pretty high. Yeah. So the discovery zone is really a experimental approach to learning what you need to know to move forward or not. On one hand, this sounds like market research, but also on the other hand, it sounds like there's points in a project's life where we need to understand we're still making some assumptions that we don't actually have data to, to know if we should be moving forward or not. How do we recognize that we should be in the discovery zone when we think that we're, we're not? So if you look at a project, you could probably do a, just a thumb in the air kind of test. What is the ratio of speculation to actual knowledge? Okay. And so early on, if you have like a, what are some models? There's discovery, generate some ideas, different names for it. There's an incubation kind of area where you're messing around. Your investments are serious, but they're not so serious. You're trying to de-risk. And then there's like an acceleration or sometimes called scale up where it's like thrusters on. There's still a lot of innovation, but we basically know how it's going to work out, right? And as you come out of an idea generation process, you come out of and you're actually getting a concrete proposal. That's the first time you should really be thinking this way and take a broad view of your issues. Talk to your critics, talk to different perspectives, get them all on the table, and then rank them by ignorance and impact to whatever level of sophistication you can manage. You can do quantitative analyses to get real business cases, which often is very important. You can just swag it to start, get things moving. The key is what uncertainties build confidence in the business case or its upside. It's the uncertainty that matters, right? So do that at the beginning. You'll get a list. The thing about the discovery zone, it's not necessarily market research. It's, I have a rule of thumb, which is whatever you are good at is going to be overworked. So it's probably whatever you're not good at. And I can tell when I'm getting there when you start to squirm and show me a little fear <laughs> or anxiety or something, because it's definitely... You ask that question, we're yeah. not really sure what the answer is to that. That's right. That's actually what I'm looking for. Or you can role play, be an outsider. What would you say? Like this HP. Can HP build the printer? Yes. That's not the question. What is the question? But I think start there and you will find that there's a bunch of stuff in your discovery zone. So build your learning plans around that. You may need to do other stuff that's more routine. You may need to do some platform development. I mean, I'm not saying you don't need to do some of that stuff, like the HP watch thing. You might actually need to build some watches to test whether you can make a platform, right? But the point is you have to organize your incubation plans, learning plans, around the discovery zone questions. Those are like prime. And as you learn, you reassess at the major gates and our major iterations. So you might have several iterations in here where your discovery zone shifts because you have new, a new understanding of the problem. At some point, it will start to stabilize and the issues you're dealing with are closer to your comfort zone. This is an uncertainty that I know the core business unit can prosecute, for, for example, or the impact of this, the, the, there's still uncertainty in the market size, but I know the base market is big enough to be big and I know that if we can get on the board, the core organization knows how to land and expand, right? So that would be an uncertainty that might be big impact still, but it's not going to make or break the confidence in the business case anymore, right? So at some point you'll get there and then you should consider transitioning to, to some kind of scale up or acceleration, a different model where you're trying to power it up, right? Yeah, I think a lot of this, yeah, and so like Lean Startup woke up a lot of people about yes. this kind of idea of what are your assumptions? Yeah recognize there are assumptions, there's information we don't know, make your hypotheses, test that, get more information along the way.
And I think so much of this is just recognizing that we don't have all the information and simply building the product, launching and figuring it out on the back end doesn't mean we're going to be right then. That's kind of just hoping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's see if I still have a job through this, fail. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The lean startup example is pretty good. I mean, we're very much in that spirit. And I think we have something to add, though. Lean startup basically says, make your hypotheses and do what you can learn fastest. And the problem with that is that people don't do enough critical thinking about what they really need to learn. So our view is that you need to learn what you're most likely to learn from, that's this discovery zone. So you can learn a lot by thinking more in terms of the uncertainties. This is broadly speaking a real options kind of thinking because what you're buying is information about uncertainties. What's different in innovation is that the uncertainty you're looking for is the upside uncertainties. In fact, unreasonable upside uncertainties. Innovation is pretty outrageous, really. What's an example of a upside uncertainty. So when you talk about an uncertainty, I don't know, pick something total available market, a willingness to pay for something and whatever it is. And you were, if you were to make an estimate, your innovation, the, uh, the CFO, some, so make your business case, what's your estimate for the price? Write down a number. And then you argue about whether that's a reasonable number, right? This is a terrible way to do it. But it's what's done most of the time. So our idea is that you want to talk about what would make the willingness to pay for this high. So I want you to like brainstorm, be a dreamer for a few minutes and focus on the outrageous, unreasonable upside. What would make the willingness to pay high? Give me a bunch of reasons. Let's make a really optimistic estimate. I am not trying to be realistic. I'm trying to be optimistic. Okay, have that part of the conversation. And then we'll take a little pause and we'll say, all right, let's suppose you get this off the ground. It turns out willingness to pay is small. Why would that happen? And so you write down a bunch of reasons why willingness to pay might be small. So you'd have a price. Maybe $10 is the high one and $1 is the low one and your best estimate is $4. The numbers really don't matter very much. What you learn is I, I am trying to create a world where people want to pay $10 or something close to it. And the difference in these reasons, what were your scenarios for you? when you were dreaming, when you were being pessimistic, what is actually the difference between those scenarios and how can I go learn about it? Because that's where the action is. So that's what I mean by you want to figure out the upside of the uncertainty. So normally, if you've done this normal thing and you did your estimate and, and you come up with a three or whatever, and then you argue about whether it's reasonable, it's all risk. The best you're ever going to do is the three. And it's a million ways you might not get the three. But that misses the point. The point is, can I get a 10? And what would it take for me to believe that? and get out of that kind of super counterproductive conversation innovators often find them in themselves in with a with business case and financially minded types who are you know in their own way asking the question how do we really make money at this which is probably a good question to ask they just have a pretty lousy way of engaging yeah it's a way to get our brains thinking a little bit differently too it's like that pre-mortem exercise right yeah for this to be successful these things are going to happen for this to be a failure, these things would happen. And start asking the, that, those questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how can we maximize this? And what does that look like? Exactly. I think this is all, you mentioned Lean Startup. I think this is also broadly in the camp of discovery-driven planning. So there's a bunch of body of work there that basically says the same kinds of things. I have gotten a criticism about this whole approach by the CTO of a filtration company who said, David, the, this, these are tools for critical thinking and for helping people figure out how to get better outcomes. Your assumption is that people 
want to do better critical thinking. They don't. They just want to do whatever's next, whatever they like to do. And what he's saying is that he tells me that the biggest problem he had adopting agile methods or lean methods was that people would take whatever they had next on their plan or on their gates or based on their expertise, and they'd write that down and reframe it as a hypothesis and then work on that. So he needed a way, right? They just do what you want to do. Let's, how do we just make this, you know, a wallpaper version of actual experimental thinking? And so this, this is basically an approach to really up your game for critical thinking, both as the innovation leader and also as the team, because you can now engage the critics and the dreamers in a way that brings them on board prioritize what you work on in a way that doesn't burn your personal credibility. And so that gives you more at-bats and more chances to learn and higher rates of learning. And learning is very important for all of us. And it really, this is raising kind of that critical thinking, recognizing what is uncertain. How can we use that to our advantage? Excellent information. Thank you for sharing that with us. How can listeners find out about the work you're doing, other resources you have available? So go to my website, which is www.smartorg.com. And on there is a fun little video about this called When Wheat Won't Win. When Wheat Won't Win. Yeah, a little 90-second video. So if you search my website for that, you'll, uh, you'll probably find that entertaining. I did watch it. Uh, oh, you did? did okay. This, and it was quite entertaining. So when wheat won't win, and you have to find out what do they do instead if wheat won't win. What so. do they do when wheat won't win? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. a cliffhanger. It is. Okay. Resources at smartorg. That's org.com. Exactly. Great. Dave, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for this great opportunity. And thanks to the PDMA for holding this great conference and bringing us together. It's been fun. And listeners, once again, if you want a written summary of our discussion and that one-page action guide, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 420. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.